Like, when I think of the conflict that the Capulets and the Montagues are fighting about, I always think about Fiddler on the Roof, where at the beginning he's like, and we have, it's a very peaceful tradition. in our little... Yeah, yeah. Tradition! Exactly. It's like, it's very peaceful in our little village, but except for the time that he sold him a horse and delivered a mule, and for a second, like, the whole stage goes, horse, mule, horse, mule. <laughs> Gentles all, and welcome to What You Will, a tedious and brief Shakespeare podcast. I'm Charlotte Aline. And I'm Danielle Cohn. And this is part two of our discussion of the play Romeo and Juliet. I thought you were going to join me with that. Okay, (laughs) well, that's fine. Just leave me out in the cold. I'm Trixie. Last week, we talked a lot about the more general... No, this is gone. Last, week, last week we talked about some of the more general ideas of the play, as well as the characters Romeo and Juliet themselves. But today we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about the other characters in the play, in particular, the other cool teens. <laughs> Yeah, so talking about the cool teens, Tybalt. Tybalt. Here's my realization about Tybalt is that his name is Garfield. Let me explain. <laughs> Let me explain. So I wanted I want to talk about this without bringing up any productions that I've personally been in. But I'm going to. I was in a production once where, where of cats. yes, where um, of cats. When, when Tybalt entered, we had we had a. Pre- I saw this production. Uh, I saw this production. I was playing, of course, Friar Lawrence. Who else? But Tibble is called the Prince of Cats a lot, mostly by Mercutio, who also just calls him a, a cat. And when he's dying, he's you know. A, I want nothing but one of your nine lives. Yeah, and a cat to scratch a man to death. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of language about Tybalt being a cat, and that is because Tybalt was the name of a cat in a a fairy tale kind of story called Reynald the Fox. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fact check the name of the fox. I think it's Reynald. So... Tybalt essentially is out there in Verona being an angry teenage boy with the name of a cartoon cat. <laughs> Just the, as much of as the Veronans of the era could have cartoon cats, Tybalt is named after one. Yeah. And that's That's going to make it. You, that's going to make it hard for you, yeah. Tybalt. And I wonder he's got so much anger. He was probably bullied anger. on the schoolyard. And like, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's how I, I just teased. Tybalt. I mean, there's also the other. The, <laughs> we the are other an anti-bullying guy. podcast. This is an anti-bullying podcast. There's, a, there's, there's a version of the play where he's just a furry. But um, I, I do think <laughs> he's, just he's, just, he's just a full cat. He's a cat. <laughs> I. This is not my dream production, but I, I do want to see a production where he, every, everything is like in period, and then Tybalt <laughs> is just a cat from Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cats, cats. just like. <laughs> But up, but no, that's West Side Story. What's the song from Cats? Mid no, memory. like the what? No, no. Ba 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 ba. 
but 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 like I oh. yeah I just <laughs> jellical cats a jellical cats a jellical cat exactly yeah but Buck is a jellical cat story for you know time. what the song explained it so I just we can't we cannot are you blind when you're four we can't get into our differing feelings on Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber that's a whole other podcast <laughs> the web webcast no it can't be called that that's already a thing <laughs> the Webercast <laughs> Webercast Webercast. This is this is also my my secret backdoor pilot <laughs> for my podcast where I just apologize for Andrew Lloyd Webber. But so Tybalt is named after his name is effectively to translate it into the modern era. His name is Garfield, or his name is to a Felix. lesser extent Felix or Sylvester. Mm-hmm. And I do respect the productions in you know, a lot of high schools and otherwise who are like, we need to get some more women in this dude-heavy play, and they cast Tybalt as a woman, and like, you know what, that's fine. That's, that's There are ways there, to make that work. There are ways to make it work, but I do think what you lose um, by having Tybalt not be a cisgendered male is that he's got such a chip on his shoulder and he's so ready to fight and he's getting these really confusing mixed messages where one his parents named him Garfield and he's he's just just, he's just out there trying to live and all the other kids are being mean to him about that his big uncle daddy Capulet is like we we hate the Montagues but then also don't fight Tibble you suck and like he's just getting a lot of negative reinforcement for everything no matter what he does and then, you know, he's doing what he was the sort of the math, uh, toxic masculinity programming he was given, which is like, I gotta fight. fight. I gotta fight Romeo. And, and the other thing I think is interesting about Tibble is that we don't really, in any point of the play, get to see him being chill. Like, yeah. we don't really see good Tibble at any point. Yeah. And it is kind of interesting that everyone's reaction, even the nurse, who like, is, is basically part of the family, but... Yeah who doesn't have any blood relation to Tibble, doesn't have any reason that she has to be uh, obliged to mourn for him in, in such a deep way. They really, they're sad. They're like, he's our dude. Yeah, so I, d- the nurse calls him her dearest friend. Yeah. So there, there <laughs> is, I mean, like, that can just be, we can talk about the nurse. But, but I do think that there is, as we are seeing a lot lately, like, there's both the this entitled, angry male energy that he has... But then there is the part of us that either is apologizing for it or that feels bad for it or that they're, they're, it's a multifaceted person where he's not just an angry, fighty guy. And that when he tries to do what he's been told and hate on the Montagues and he gets yelled at by Daddy Caps at the, at the ball, and then he goes out there in the world and Mercutio immediately starts to pick a fight with him and... I mean, Mercutio Mer- Mer- does pick a fight with him. And also, that's, I mean, it's it's sad when Mercutio dies, even though Mercutio's not my favorite. I mean, Mercutio kind of sucks. Like, the fun character. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I got far. Um, I, I like Mercutio. Okay. But I get, I get what you're saying. You know, but I feel like he's been a little bit reinvented as he's just so brilliant and troubled when he can also kind of just be a dick who doesn't listen to his and, friends. And kind of a blowhard. And kind of a blowhard. He's hard. like, fuck your feelings, listen to my thoughts about dreams. <laughs> yeah. Who else wants to do coke with me and then talk about their dreams? And, you know, not that not that, that person 
deserves to die. Of course not. He you know, he still deserves our empathy and is still an interesting character. But um, it's so tragic when like after Mercutio dies and Romeo says to himself like, "Oh Juliet, thy love has hath made me effeminate." That yeah, he has that line to himself, yeah. saying like, "I've become a woman." I and then that that's what spurs him to kill Tybalt. More than his sadness for Mercutio's death, it's that Mercutio, in his dying breath, yells at them. For not having his back. For not having his back, and blames him for trying to stop the fight. Yeah. And then that's what spurs Romeo into fighting, and then the next time we do Romeo, he's like crying because he's a kid a a lot of people are upset by the fact that they're such young teens but like i think that also explains a lot of the erratic behavior a lot of their behavior and i don't think that's something that makes them less empathetic like all you want to do is kiss and cry when you're 16 i also or 14 or 13 but i also think that there's when you're a kid you remember that you're a real full person Mm -hmm. like to bring it into another one of my geekdoms like when you're reading harry potter Mm -hmm. and you're eight or you're 12 you're like yes of course i'll go off in search of voldemort and i'll save everybody Mm -hmm. but when you're then 16 or 24 or whatever you're like they were so young how did they do that right but if you just write children or older children, which we call teens, um, <laughs> as full people who just don't quite have the maturity or the life experience or the whatever, but then you do have the Juliets who frankly are thinking through everything more fully than literally anyone else in this play. It breaks my heart that Romeo in the next, we, you know, we get these sort of equivalent scenes of Romeo crying to his effective parent because his parents are out to lunch far yeah. lawrence they're busy playing other characters they're, probably they're busy playing other characters <laughs> i know yeah we j- we'll get to lady montague's death but full on when montague comes out daddy montague and he's like yeah my wife is dead she's just dead it's not that we needed the other actors to play the guardsmen here She's dead now. Um, I mean, I have a lot of feelings about we that, have, but we'll talk we'll about it. We'll get to it. Um, <laughs> but Romeo's crying, and Friar Lawrence gives him that whole, like, be a man speech. Yeah. And Juliet has this equivalent scene, and it really does sort of, again, illustrate how Romeo leads so much with his emotions that he's, like, crying and weeping and saying, like, banished is as bad as death. I wish I was dead. I, they both wish they were I dead. I might as well be dead. They were dead. And Juliet gets a little more like, she does self-soothing a lot better than Romeo does. Wherefore we by then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She sort of reasons it out. She's like, okay, am I sad about my cousin? Yep. Am I sad about Romeo being banished? Yep. I'm gonna pull it together. I'm gonna figure it out. Well, I, and even yeah. in her a- analyzing for herself where she's like, this is good and this is fine mm-hmm. and why am I crying? Oh, I'm realizing that what I'm actually upset about isn't what I thought I was upset about. I thought I was upset because Tybalt's dead. I'm actually upset because Romeo's banished and because that means he's effectively dead to me and also what am I going to be able to do? Like, it, it again, just in the, as we've discussed at this point, ad nauseum, <laughs> she does a great job of reasoning through everything. Didn't you talk about Paris as long as we're talking <gasps> about cool teens? Paris! Team? I forgot my, my sweet, baby. Sweet Paris. My sweet baby Paris. So... Paris is often cast. Again, I I'm, I keep creating these straw men productions of like, this is how it's always done and you're wrong with like your Lady Tybalt and your old men Paris's, but I, Paris is often cast as an older gentleman. Often. 
Very often. Well, and it's often cast as, like, someone who's sort of unattractive or unlikable, at least, because they want to set it up, as we often do in theater, where we're like, you can tell who who the good guys are or yeah. who the bad guys are because the bad guys have a fake nose. Um, like, you know what I mean? Because well, they're... Bad teeth or whatever. Um, or if you're watching a Disney movie because they're British and heavily coded as gay. Yes. Yeah, Paris is often cast as an older man who's kind of creepy yeah. and, like, creep on Juliet. I think it's really interesting. I saw a production recently where Paris was cast as a woman. It was a, a gender-flipped production, and that was very interesting to see suddenly that whole exchange where Paris is talking to Juliet when she's trying to go to the friar to freak out, and he's all like, don't you be crying because your face belongs to me and I'll not see it marred because we're getting married in, like, two days. And she she does her classic double talk of being, like... Well, Juliet was also played by a man. It was a female Paris and a male... It was a male Juliet. It was a female yeah. Paris and a male Juliet. Yeah. Um, yes, to be specific. But, yeah, something when you take away our, like, social coding of Paris as an older man, it's kind of like, oh, this would be cute if we didn't have, like, the context that Juliet is in love with Romeo and that there's a tragedy going on. Yeah, what I think is also super interesting about that scene, because we do get this little scene between Paris and Juliet when Paris is, uh, when Juliet's going to the friar to be like, what do I do? In terms of its construction and the way that they sort of banter with each other, it's very similar to the Palm to Palmer scene. Mm. Like, just the structure of the language and the way that they're playing off of each other. But again, we have the context, theoretically, the actress as Juliet, or actor as Juliet, is not enjoying it in the same way and is throwing those things back because she's smart rather than because she's into it. But it was interesting this time around sort of reading that and being like, oh, this is not... Unless you have a Paris that you actively dislike, there's nothing inherently shitty about anything he's saying. Yeah, um, unless your Paris is like, your face belongs to me. Like, Yeah, it, he's yeah. like, hey, don't cry. Like, I'm so excited to marry you. And then when Paris... And he's a little bit tone deaf, even in that scene. But I would say that he's he's hitting too hard. Like we're getting married to so Like her cousin just died. Which also, if any, if you come at me saying that this play is a satire or that the moral of it, this was also on Goodreads. This is also <laughs> from Goodreads. The or a lot of people seem to think that the moral of the play is like don't rush, think things through. I want you to tell that to the Capulet parents who are like, Kibble's dead? Great. Juliet, you're getting married on Thursday. And then when Paris dies at the end, spoiler alert, Romeo fights Paris and, oh god, tempt not a desperate man is like a great line. And then we get a little bit of that like kind of like sexy Sexy action bad here. boy where we're like, ooh, Romeo. Mm, um, I see what was that. Yeah, he can do sad and he can do sad in a desperate way. Yeah. <laughs> he does get happy. He does, for a brief, for that one scene where he's bantery, the uh, Mercutio, before Mercutio dies, he keeps calling Paris youth. Youth and youth and boy, which, like, you can do ironically, but in general, Shakespeare knows what he's writing, I think is a good, I mean, y- right. you know. But, but also in general, unless Shakespeare has heavily indicated it in some other way, in which case it is clear most of the time characters in Shakespeare are speaking truth and speaking their mind and you you can make choices on those obviously always this plays have been around forever they're all public domain do whatever you want but most of the time just sort of baseline we believe what they're saying unless we have reason to doubt it yeah and like sometimes it, and there's the been nothing said about Paris about him being old just, elsewhere in the yeah. play or even about him being young really I Romeo think... just keeps being like use this use that you're so young get away from me and then he he calls him a boy when he's dead and he, he keeps saying like I don't want to hurt you I don't want to hurt you 
and Paris like, I'll fight you for my dead love. But I think Paris is young, and I think everyone who dies by violence in this play and by this violence that has been, like, totally encouraged and okayed by their parents is a teen. Yeah. Which is additionally heartbreaking. And especially if Paris is younger than Romeo, although I think Romeo is probably slightly older than Juliet. Yes. But it's also a little bit, like, maybe Paris is a little bit Romeo at the beginning of the play, except for Juliet and his Rosalind. Yeah. Where he's like, she's so pretty, and I'm gonna get to marry her, and then he's really sad that she's dead, and he's come at the dead of night in the same romantic way that you know baby Romeo would have if Rosalind had been killed. And he's like, I'm going to strew her grave with flowers. And he's like, it's so cute. And then he's like, what the fuck? The guy who killed her cousin is here. I will defend her honor. And yeah, and baby Paris, his ideas about romance are the same, are are the same as Romeo's at the beginning where he's like, girl is pretty and I like her and that makes us in love. Whereas Romeo's experienced the real thing. Like, I also think a little bit Romeo's like, I've had sex now. I can call anyone a youth who I want to. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so that really hit me really hard this time, that Paris might be young. This might be a play about youth dying because the older generation can't nut up and apologize to each other. can I give my weird little... Here's my unsolicited feeling about this play, which also... That was the second name of this podcast. The whole podcast is our unsolicited unsolicited feelings about this play. (laughs) Romeo and Juliet, for me, my journey with Romeo and Juliet, was like a weirdly up and down one of like, I read it when I was young, or I saw it when I was really young. I was like, it's Shakespeare. I like Shakespeare. And then I read it again and was like, oh, this play is cool. And then I sort of went through this weird phase, which I think is a lot of people's problem with this play, where I was like, but you know what? I don't really believe in love at first sight because I don't. And I don't really know if Romeo and Juliet would have ended up together. And like, so what does that say about this whole, this whole play is orbiting around this love that's so tenuous and maybe not even real. And why should I care? And I had two conversations actually, one with my dad and one with Charlotte, where I've said that thing about love and being in love and all that. And Charlotte said, well, of course, Romeo is in love with love, but to him, love is Juliet. And so mm-hmm. he is in love with Juliet as much as anyone is in love with anyone. So that sort of was one half of my issue with play. And then the other was I had this conversation where my father was like, the play in a lot of ways isn't really about love at all. I think whether you believe in true love or first love or any, if you believe in any form of any love, you can be like, it, it's nice. It's a good thing. Love is cool. And especially young love and first love and puppy love is this thing that it's so pure and it's so innocent and lovely. And even with all of the sexy, horny feelings of it, that's it's all just like good. And, and it's this beautiful thing, whether it would have lasted a day or a year or a lifetime, that is destroyed by blind hatred. And it's really, at it, I think, at its most interesting core it's a play that orbits around love but it's a play that's about the perils of blind hatred we never find out the capulets and the montagues are fighting about Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what matters is that there are these two huge households who have held this grudge and told their children that they should be fighting and hating each other and that toxic masculinity is okay and that you should fight on the streets and whatever. You've got the government sort of like, yeah, that's not great, but that's not who the real, who they're listening to. 
And then you watch that stupidity be the cause of so much death and sadness. And the fact that at the end of the play, I don't want to say all it took was their kids dying because, of course, that is something. But there's no moment where they're like, and you know what? I forgive you for that thing. There isn't even really a problem to be reconciled. All it took was them just having to be like, you know what? We can coexist. We can be friends. We can honor life. Anyway, that's my small rant on this play being about something other than love and why your feelings on love are sort of irrelevant to this play. Although your feelings on love, I think, are relevant to your enjoyment of this play. Well, yeah, I also think it says a lot about us as a society, which is a sentence I hate to say. But we will. But I will. It says a lot about us as a society that we look at this play and our automatic reaction is to critique the young lovers on how in love they are. And how good and their love is. And how good their love is and how true it is and... And that we we get upset that they get married so fast and that we get upset that they, like, just really want to bone. Which, again, I, I would even go so far as to say that this play makes even the sexual part of love into something pure and innocent and bright and lovely and yeah. consensual and beautiful. It's all good. Clearly, their first time went well because Juliet's like, don't leave in the morning. And I you've know. got that very cute morning after scene where they're both like, no, you're banished. No, you're banished. <laughs> um, but it was luck. Yeah, it's it's well, really it's really sad that a lot of people would prefer to like critique how in love they are versus like critiquing the violence surrounding it. Like another Goodreads review that I came across was upset that there wasn't more fighting and more action in the play. And like, there's a, there's a considerable amount of fighting. We're so trained to be like, violence is okay, but anything sexual is not. Like violence can be PG-13, but anything sexual is R or NC-17. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, that is much dirtier and less allowed than love is. Yeah. Should we talk about the adults? I was gonna say, so <laughs> on that note, Lady Capulet is 28. Lady Capulet is 28. Lady Capulet is 28. Yeah, let's talk about the people whose fault this fucking play is. So, Lady Capulet <sighs> is a fascinating human being. What's interesting about Lady Capulet as just a character, as an actor, is she can either be wallpaper, she can be nothing. You can totally have a Lady Capulet who does nothing, or she can steal the show. She's she can, fascinating. Yeah, one of my other uh, good friends from childhood, Gabby Montute, in our our sixth grade scene study of Romeo and Juliet, she was playing Lady Capulet. And I, it, it still stands to me as the, the best reading of this line anyone's ever had. But in that first scene with Lady Capulet and Juliet, Lady Capulet comes in. She asks the nurse how old her daughter is. Yep. Presumably with her, her glass of uh, Chardonnay. A Chardonnay in her hand. Wearing her white jeans and her cork estrels and her paisley top. And the nurse gives her whole comical monologue where it's like, oh, the nurse is working class, so she talks a lot. That's funny. Also, side note on that monologue, I think that monologue cracks open if you realize that the nurse is laughing through the whole thing. Yes. A lot of the weird things about the rhythm of it and, like, also just what makes it funny is that she's cracking herself up the whole time. Well, yeah, that's the monologue. As a 24-year-old who's played this a couple of times. (laughs) um, (laughs) 
the perils of being a tall woman <laughs> in college and uh, high school. Actors. But yeah, she's like, I know how old she is because she was sucking on a nipple and then an earthquake happened. Uh, LOL. Anyway. Um, yeah, the nurse. And also the nurse is like mentioning her own daughter who died. There's a lot. There's a lot there. We'll get to the nurse yeah, in a but, moment. But first, um, cork girls. Yeah, Lady Lady Capulet comes in and her with her hand-beaten silver jewelry and her, her paisley blouse and her cork espadrilles. And she, she asks the nurse how old her daughter is, and then she's like, okay, nurse, go away. Um, I, I need, need to talk, I need to, to, my talk to my daughter. And the nurse leaves. And Gabby did it best in sixth grade. She just takes a beat, looks at her daughter. You see the fear in her eyes. And she says, nurse, come back again. She can't talk to her daughter. She's never had a conversation with her child without the nanny there. Yeah, it's a beautiful scene because in addition to a million other things and like basic plot, mm-hmm. in just a few moments, it really sets up the the dynamic between these three women. Yeah. And we get very quickly that the nurse is the mother figure, mm-hmm. but also that she is the lowest in terms of status and authority. And then we get that the Lady Capulet is technically the highest authority, but does not connect it and not in touch. And that Juliet is very capable of being both polite and also deflecting. She's a queen master deflector. So we get all of that in just a few minutes of this scene. And then the first time we see Daddy Capulet... Daddy Capulet is just an overgrown frat boy. Like, he spends most of the play being like, let's have a party! What I never noticed... Okay, two very important things. One, one of the Capulet's chefs is named Antony... And I can't help but imagine him as Anthony from Queer Eye. <laughs> That's um, true. It's spelled the same way, or maybe not. But, yes. um, and then he's making that grapefruit and avocado salad for the... Yeah. Yes, you, like, you gotta imagine I, that in the background of the mask There's bowl, a lot. There's, there's just Anthony from Queer Eye slicing an avocado slowly and explaining it to you. Yes, and like looking sort of like sweet but doe-eyed. Just anyway. smelling something. Anyway. But, but also, this was the first time I noticed that um, Daddy Caps does a, he does this whole big thing. We're so sad about Tibble. We're sad. We're sad. We're gonna have a wedding. It's gonna be a small thing. It's gonna be very a small, small, small wedding because people are gonna think badly of us if we're like turning up right after Tybalt's died. Yeah. And Juliet is um, his only daughter. He doesn't have any other children. So Tybalt was a lot like, he was male heir of the house, um, which makes it all the more important that Juliet gets married uh, now. But then there's um, a line about how they're having like multiple chefs coming mm-hmm. for Juliet and Paris's wedding. Clearly they're going to do it up again. Yeah. And also I think another thing that again, I noticed, and, and it's interesting sort of having just reread this play eh, with like being slightly older and having seen more productions of it but also just like an uncut version because almost every time you're seeing Shakespeare the director has cut some stuff down just so that you don't like kill yourself. They always lose Um, Peter and the musicians. There's like so many old jokes. They're like you're old you can't fight anymore like you're just old. Yeah. And he's like but I but I'm fun I'm fun and I'm old. And, and again, it's like, he's he's all like, oh, fuck the Montagues. But then when they're having a party, he's like, ah, let Romeo stay. I hear he's a nice kid. We're turning it up. Like, don't be a dick, Tibble. It's I just, mean, like, he's, he's a bro. He's a bro. And he's also, like, he's a bad dad for a lot of reasons. But one of, one of the many reasons is that he's super inconsistent with the boundaries he sets. Where he's like, Montagues are evil. And then he's like, Tibble, why are you mad about Montagues? It's like, because you him like that. Exactly. And it's the same thing where he's like, well, I don't want to marry off Juliet because she's pretty young. And then a week yeah. later, he's like, surprise, if you don't get married, I'm going to disinherit you. He is like, you know, he's that dad who's like, I'm not a feminist, but I respect women so much. He comes out of the gate 
say Paris is like, your daughter's cute. And he's like, I think she's a little young. I would never make her marry against her will. And then he That's turns what around. He sets up. And as soon as she's like, hey, dad, maybe not. Oh, it's heartbreaking, that scene where he just rails on her. And it's, it is weird that he's like, I'm super respectful of my daughter's wishes and I love her and she's at the center of my universe. But then for whatever reason gets it into his head that the only way to cheer everybody I think that's where it's coming from. The only way well, to cheer no, everybody no. up is to have a wedding or like I think it's because they need to even the even the playing field. They need an heir that they Tibble, need to make sure that Tibble was the, the son. Heir. He was yeah. the son of the family. Yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. They care about their family legacy a yes. lot. For for Lady Capulet, where I think I mean she can be hilarious in the first couple scenes where she's like this, you know, uh... I don't know how to talk to my daughter. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to talk I'm to my daughter. Housewife. I've never, like, dealt with her without the nanny. I mean, yes, it's olden times, but you don't need a nanny at 14. And, like, that... And that the wife really has nothing going on in her life. And that, I think to her, I think the more interesting way to play it when, uh, Daddy Caps is yelling at Juliet is that Lady Capula just doesn't even... She can't even process the idea of saying no to getting married at this age because she got married she says that she got married around that age this has been her life she's never made any decisions yeah so the idea of her daughter making this decision i think has to be scary and bewildering to her and also i think there's room for an actress to play a little bit of that feeling of well if i didn't get to make this choice you don't yeah but and, it's, and it's another way to sort of i think we sort of watch juliet go She's denied by her father, she's denied by her mother, she's denied by the nurse, which we'll get to in a second. But I think that the more that those are sort of free distinctive ways that she's rejected, Mm -hmm. and I do think that that is a way of, like, following through the, the Lady Capulet arc that makes sense. But I do, I also think it's important that we watch Lady Capulet and dad caps grieve i think they don't have any roadmap for how to relate to their child differently than the way that they are yes and i think that's also what makes romeo and juliet's love profound they don't have any examples of people in love (laughs) they don't and they sort of discuss i mean every teen like feels like they discovered love the first time they are they fell in love but like they do kind of they're their parents aren't in love. Their friends all seem to, like, Romeo's bros seem to view women as, like, irrelevant or just, like, stupid sluts. Like, Mercutio is awful to the nurse when he see, yeah, sees her. Yeah, and even the nurse is, like, sort of like, ah, oh, men, you're, you're gonna have sex one day, but, like, that's... That's it. I like, mean, we don't see any... Negative. We don't see any other... Well, not always. She's, like... She makes jokes she about it. Like, you'll bear the burden soon at night. Yeah. Is this that kind of a negative? Well, I think thing? it's negative. It's she's not like, oh my gosh, everybody should be having sex oh, all the time. But she helps. Nurse? It's time to talk with the nurse. But I feel like nurse. the nurse, like, she helps her procure, even if it is for the sake yes, of, yes, yes, of yes, having their marriage be yeah. legitimate. But she also makes a lot of body jokes. She does. Like, I don't think she she's does. like a prude. No, no, no. And and her talking about her. I mean, the first. It's interesting. The first thing we hear her talk about in that like silly monologue that she's laughing through is she's like, one time when you were a baby, you fell on your face, and my husband was like, ah, oh, when you're older, you'll fall on your back. Ah, oh, he was a gem. Like, <laughs> right? That's literally that's yes. it. She's yep. like, oh my god, I miss him so much. But but I do think that the the 
nurse like loves the idea of Julia getting married and having sex and babies and like all of it. No, she does. She know. well, she does. But the nurse is super interesting. I was reading Harold Bloom's opinion on the play, and a, a lot of what he says I agree with in terms of he feels like this is Shakespeare's most profound example of like consensual romantic love and that it Juliet is the heart of the play so much which I agree with but then also he felt like the nurse doesn't genuinely love Juliet from the start which I Mr. Bloom sir we have a disagreement there I don't there. agree with that I at don't all. agree with that I think the nurses it seems like her husband has passed it seems like her yeah Juliet's all she has, has is died. what's set up Juliet is all she has she does a lot for and she she's elderly she risks everything she can't read she has so little power in this society and if it was like found out that she was going against the Capulets she'd probably be out on the street period yeah and and also they like make fun of her for not being able yeah, to read yeah also the number of illiteracy jokes in this play is wild like there are so many like there's a whole scene where they're like the the Montagues, I guess, are like, hey servants, like go or no, the Capulets. Yeah. Like, hey servants, like go go do errands. <laughs> and one of the servants is like, Oh no, what does this say? And that's like a whole speech. And then he comes across like Romeo and the bros and he's like, Can you help do you know how to read? And they're like, Shh, of course we know how to read. They're very snotty about it. Yeah, we should make it clear that like these are rich teens. Of course you can set things wherever you want, but there's a lot of language in this play about that supports the idea of richness and privilege as mm-hmm. part of, like, the constructs that create this space that the play exists in. Well, that's what I think is, like, doubly tragic about when the nurse denies Juliet. Because Juliet gets yelled at by her daddy and yelled at by her And her mom just kind of gives her the cold children and says, talk not to me. And then she appeals to the nurse, who's the only one who knows Juliet's real reason for not wanting to marry her. But she's already fucking married! Yeah, and also, like... I mean, on the one hand, Juliet loves Romeo and doesn't want to marry Paris, but also, like, she's going to hell if she marries Paris. She's going to hell. Like, she's already married. She can't get married again. And, like, she and Romeo are clearly religious to the extent that they, like, get married before they bone, you know? So, and she appeals to the nurse on this, like, I literally can't get married again. What can I do? And the nurse says, just marry Paris. And, like, I think you can play it. So she's she like, says he's it. cute, he's nice, he's rich. She she says he's better than Romeo, too. She's yeah. like, you know, he might like him more. Romeo's and, nothing, yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, it's so heartbreaking. But also you can see from the nurse's perspective, like, she's seen this very wealthy girl who's going to be married to the county, Paris, who's also seems to be wealthier and more powerful. Mm-hmm who's turning that down for this sort of impossible love. And, like, I think you've got to, unless we just hate the nurse, you've got to understand where the nurse is coming from to the extent that she just can't even imagine being in the position to turn down getting married to the county. Her being like, it's just love, like, it's just a a crush, like, you will get over it. And, and trying to be comforting, but also being like, you know what, like, it's, you're fine, you're fine. Um. And also Juliet's response, where she immediately puts it, like, Juliet's great at deflecting, like you said, she's yeah. great at putting up walls, and she immediately does that to the nurse. She's like, okay, okay, great, cool, I'm gonna go to sleep, yeah. please don't bother and, me. Um, and then she rolls up to Farmer Lawrence's cell and is like, I have a fucking knife. I just, that whole yeah. hit me harder this time, and she shows up with a knife and is like, Help me out, friar. I have a knife. Yeah, I, the friar, first of all, his first speech. 
This bitch you may have never heard because it's usually cut because maybe intentionally boring. Fry comes out and is like, hang on everybody, I know you were watching a play, but let's halt the entire play and listen to me talk about plants. And it, part of it makes sense because we hear the friar be like, plants, plants, I know about plants. And then later he's like, oh, here's this magical roofie, Juliet, that I made from a plant. Like, I get it. I get it in terms of a planting versus payoff, like, writing perspective. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> that it makes sense that he comes out of the gate all about the plants. And that he, he's the only one who, like, well, except for Juliet, who keeps saying, like, don't rush where you're going too fast. Well, and I also think it sets up. I think a lot of this play is, like, youth versus age. Yeah. And so it's, like, we've watched, like, the hot young teens fighting each other and making dick jokes. And now here, an example of a grown-up who's, like, kind of slower and kind of more boring and, like, out of touch. Like, he doesn't come out and talk about the politics of Verona. He comes out and he talks about plants. Also, he's just... Yeah, he's a little bit the worst. And I also, the thing that struck me this time, and yes, there are a thousand ways to play him. You can play him as a noble person. I think Friar Lawrence is a coward. He's a coward. He's a fucking coward. This is an anti-Friar Lawrence podcast. We are not pro-Friar Lawrence in this house. (laughs) Uh, Two households, both alike in Friar Lawrence hatred. Anyway, I know we're jumping ahead, but I just have, I I need to talk about it. Nobody's talking about this. This is, nobody talks about it. And I, because I think something that happens a lot. Spread this like wildfire. (laughs) I know. Hot take. Friar Lawrence is the worst. But I think what happens in a lot of Shakespeare's plays that can get, sort of deadly in fifth act is that we the audience have watched all the action unfold and so because it's not greek drama shakespeare's nice he lets us watch the juicy stuff so then the fifth act happens and the rest of the characters on stage don't know and somebody has to be like this is what happened and we get that a little bit in benvolio's speech to the the mm-hmm. prince you have to find a way to make that spicy you, you just need a good actor in benvolio to be like playing an action there but what happens a lot in the fifth act is they're like and here's everything that happened and then let's wrap it up let's wrap it up let's wrap it up Romeo and Juliet doesn't do that super for a super long time which is nice but what I think is super interesting about it is it's Friar Lawrence and he is the worst but what has just happened is not only is it all his fault because mm-hmm. he gave the roofie to Juliet and he didn't get the message to Romeo in time and he didn't but even he show up. Juliet. That's what I was about to say. But my <laughs> biggest problem and the thing that I think actually is not the tragedy of the play, but like a major moment is that literally he's there with Juliet. Juliet wakes up. Also, the way that the language blocks the play, even though whether or not you've staged it like that, is Romeo, like, died on top of Juliet and put Paris in the tomb with her. So she wakes up covered in two dead bodies. It's a strange, she's got a speech where she's like, where is Romeo? I'm like, he just said with a kiss I die. It's like, presumably he's on top of you. Maybe he rolled to the side. Maybe he rolled to the side. Maybe she's still in, like, a a stupor. I picture her, like, still half sleeping. Where's Romeo? Anyway. But she wakes up with two dead bodies, like, adjacent to her person. And he's like, hey, sorry, whole plan's fucked up. Romeo's dead. And she's like, what? And he's like, uh, I hear a noise. Can we, like, go? And she's like, what? And he's also like, and I'll take you to a nunnery. It'll be cool. It'll be cool. And then he just leaves because he heard a scary noise. Are you kidding me? Also, <laughs> you have the... Co- because also he has the context. He knows that she has said that she walked into he a with a knife. leaves a drugged 14-year-old girl with a knife? Who has proclaimed herself to be suicidal. Yeah. 
He just leaves. And then he comes back and he's like, oh, fuck. And then he has to explain what he did. And he says something where he's like, if I did anything wrong, you can punish me. I'm like, I don't know what happens at the end of the end of the play, but like, I hope somebody. No, they, when they say we like, know, we know you to be a godly man. Exactly, they're like, it's not your fault. Well, I'm just saying, I hope somebody was like, also <laughs> fuck you. But no, they're like, if you're a godly man, you did your best. But it is this weird speech where he is justifying a bunch of bad decisions, and that is so much more interesting than just watching somebody explain what happened to the characters who didn't know. And also, like he'd better be fucking racked with guilt or confusion. Yep. I just it made me so mad. And literally, the the word that he uses is scared. Annoy, yeah. annoy, scared me, and I left. And I'm like, how? <laughs> dare you how dare you especially because yes it's a tomb at night it's scary and, and there's people around who could get you in trouble yeah and i've heard the critique of this play which honestly this isn't a critique that i have the most problem with that people think it it glamorizes teen suicide which is obviously a very serious issue and i understand if someone has that argument with the play but i think as opposed to glamorizing it shows the tragedy is that friar lawrence leaves her there yeah she, Juliet could have survived. We could have had Maria at the end of West Side I Story. I was just going to say, a la West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, like that. that's still a tragedy. But I get think it, Juliet is in a very vulnerable moment where she is not okay. And she is abandoned and failed by the only adult who knows the full context well, of her situation. And where she has then effectively been abandoned and failed by every... Because we she, watched yes. her be rejected yeah. by, again, dad, mom, nurse, and uh, the, the friar. Yeah, and so it's not... The moral of the play is certainly not that Romeo and Juliet should have died by suicide, but it shows us, rather, it shows us kids being failed by everyone who's supposed to protect them and yeah. every support system even like the friar is not only the only adult who knows what's up with her he's god i mean he's the church you know he's the ultimate authority here up even above the prince yeah and also like he the the uh, it's there's also a weirdness with friar wants to me of when he's like um, when they come to him to ask if he will marry them. And he's like, yeah, sure. Plus, I think it might make your households get along better. But then he doesn't really no, he doesn't. execute any plan there. And so you, I get this weird feeling of, like, he's using them a little bit, but yeah. also not even really organized enough to figure out how. And, like, how long are we going to just let them be secretly married? And one of the things that I think is brilliant about this character in the hashtag don't hate on Friar Lawrence that we would theoretically get if this podcast had greater circulation um, <laughs> is that he does provide some wisdom in the play. He yes. does, you know, they stumble that run fast and and, and that he's always trying, that clearly Romeo trusts him and that he loves him and that he knows him well and all of that actually makes it worse where it's not just, you know, Lady Capulet and her espadrilles at the age of 28 <laughs> who like doesn't know how to be a mom. It's that he's like, I'm your wife friar guy and i will be here and i will help you and then just fails to think it through and like yes again you can argue like well what if the letter had gotten there but also like even that feels weirdly irresponsible i well okay first of all he made a character error in trusting friar john i would love i would love a a, a gillum turn is dead style play of like about friar john's life just like because <laughs> friar like because does Friar John, like, live forever with the guilt of what he's done by not 
not passing the six message along. But also, Friar Lawrence, put one of those little email, like, very important tabs on your letter to Romeo. Being like, your girlfriend's not dead, not dead, just sleeping. Also, also, I mean, look, I obviously... Yeah, he was like, this letter's really important. And he's like, oh, I tried. Like, and again, obviously, like, it's not that I think Shakespeare should have written this differently so much I think as this is a huge part of the tragedy that isn't often treated as the tragical moment it when Juliet comes to hit the knife and she's like I'm gonna stab myself with a knife if you don't figure out a way to get me out of this and also like Juliet has so little power as a girl like she's not even a woman she's a young girl she can't leave the house without her parents permission and even then only to go see Friar Lawrence yeah and that Friar Lawrence's response is cool pretend to be dead and then like everyone will be sad and feel bad and it's like that's not an acceptable thing to tell someone at suicide risk that's not (laughs) an acceptable thing to be like no your family will feel so bad like that's really awful well i mean it's also just so that he can get her into the tube it's all spirit her away well no i know it's i know i know it's that but like it's just and that Juliet, when she's about to take his roofie, has her whole monologue about, like, the friar might just be trying to kill me so that he doesn't get in trouble with God for marrying me twice. Yeah. And, like, honestly, maybe. That might, like, I would believe it if the friar did that. Yeah. He's very shady. Shady friar. And, like, very holier than thou. No pun intended. Mm. Also, I love when the nurse is like, this guy's smart when they're all hanging out together. Yeah. In Friar Lawrence's cell. Also, uh, sorry, but Romeo and Friar Lawrence being, like, friends is a Marty McFly-Doc Brown friendship level <laughs> confusion where it's like, why is this teen just friends with an old man? I think it's the it's a, the nurse parallel of, like, bad parents and he needed some sort of adult. Sure. Figure. Like, at least the, like, the nurse lives in Juliet's house. And, like, I mean, we don't see as much of Romeo's parents at all. Like, one, because he's, he's a boy, so he's allowed to, like, hang outside, which Juliet is not. But also just, like... Why is he friends with Friar Lawrence, an old man? Yeah. It makes no sense. No sense. Hi, we are joined here tonight by our good friend David Huynh, who's here to talk with us about a little play called Romeo and Juliet. Yay, David. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. Thank you for being on. And, um... Sorry that we only could feed you a tamale. Um, so. <laughs> hey, we okay. also got him Brussels sprouts <laughs> and a fancy tart from Trader Joe's. And so much wine. And so, so much wine. Some leftover boxed wine. Only the best for David. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the best of our leftover food our and wine friends. stuff. He's our fancy friend. Just fancy things. So, David, why don't you give our listeners, like, 30 seconds about you? Who are you? Um, <laughs> sure. I, I'm David Wynn. I am an actor. I went to grad school at the University of Houston, where I got my MFA in acting. And I really love Shakespeare. I've worked at Shakespeare festivals all over the country. And um, I was recently in a short film called Children of the Dust. Please look it up. Um, we're still crowdfunding for our um, short film. But, yeah, that's, that's me. Amazing. Excellent. So, what is your connection to Romeo and Juliet? So, Romeo and Juliet, I feel like if anyone does Shakespeare, eventually that's the play that they'll, like, their career will eventually lead to. Like, all roads lead to R&J <laughs> in some way. Mm-hmm. But personally, uh, it was the first play that I did when I moved to New York. That's how I met Charlotte. Uh, yeah, David played Romeo in that production, and I played Friar Lawrence. 
kind of. It, w- it was a very cut down uh, production of the play. You were also our voice and speech person. I mean, that wasn't used very much, but I appreciated your <laughs> presence there. Yeah, so what was, what is our next talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, is there any other thing you want to say about your connections to this play? Anything personal about this play? Yeah, I, I love this play. And I think that it's like Shakespeare in Love, how the Queen challenges Shakespeare to write a play that really encapsulates what it means to fall in love. I think this play is beautiful. I think this is one of the best plays in the English language. And in doing that very stressful, arduous production, it helped me realize that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with my uh, then girlfriend and now fiance. Aww. Yep. Aww. <laughs> yep. I hope some none of your viewers vomit, but yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cute. Audio medium. Um, why should other people like this play? I think the reason why. Okay, so like, let's just like the elephant in the room is that people hate Romeo and Juliet. People hate Romeo. Yeah, they and do, Juliet. and I think they're it's wrong. because they're totally wrong. <laughs> because your English teachers fucking suck. Your English teachers don't know how to teach Shakespeare, and like they have to teach Romeo and Juliet because it's part of the state requirements. And so they're like, oh, it's Shakespeare. I don't know how to teach Shakespeare. And so they do a really bad job. This is a huge generalization. I have many dear friends that are teachers, but for the most part, that is the correct generalization. <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is a beautiful play. And I think that um, it really does captures like the highs and lows of this like really loving, intense relationship in this really fucked up world. Because like the play starts with it's really funny like the Gregory Sampson Montague Capulet like street brawl. It's really funny how they get into it. But like if you look at it face value, it's a brawl in the city. Like this city is steeped in violence and blood and hatred that these two families have for each other. It's so much so that the government barely has a handle on it, right? Yeah. But then these two people from these different warring families find something so beautiful and wonderful in each other for like just a just a brief moment and then the world that they're born into ruins it like it's it's such this this great exploration of love despite all of these 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 um these odds against it mm-hmm. yeah and i think what drives me nuts when people talk about why they hate the play is that they end up often taking the sides of the capulets and the montagues you know, people will say like, oh, well, they don't, they're, they're just teens, they don't know anything, they're too hormonal. But yeah, they, they end up sounding like Juliet's dad when he's like, you can't make your own decisions, you're a kid, you don't know anything, and screams at her and it's really mean and terrible. If, if you are, if your opinion on the play in any way comes close to that, maybe re-examine it. Yeah, totally. Maybe realize that Shakespeare accounted for your POV and put it in the mouth of a character you're not supposed to agree with. It's, yeah, yeah it's, it's very much in the play, the adults sort of dismissing, dis- dismissing their the kids' opinions, and especially you, you even get... Um, Daddy Caps, as we've been calling him so thus Daddy far, thus far here. On, our, on our podcast, um, you know when he's talking to Tybalt or or Garfield, we've <laughs> <laughs> David's gonna be a little lost. Um, yeah, the shorthand, this is great. Shorthand. Um, when, when Daddy Caps is talking to Garfield at the party, <laughs> and Garfield just wants to he, fight. He, he's like, I just want to fight. I learned it from you, Dad or Uncle. And Daddy Caps is like, no, don't do that. It's very, like, inconsistent messaging that the adults are giving to the youths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, again, is one of the sort of problems in the play, one of the cautions, one of the conflicts, one of the things that makes it so much more than just two people being in love, which would be Mm -hmm. a lot already. But it sort of takes that, which is so easy as a human being to grasp onto and to care about and to empathize with, and then it forces you through that lens 
to grapple with a lot of the much bigger problems in the world, both yeah. in the both in the world of Verona, but also in the world of now. I mean, those are still problems. There are still brawls in streets, and there are still totally. parents who don't want to listen to their very smart children, and there are still, I mean, not to get too political, but like we're seeing in Parkland, like there are plenty of teens who are much smarter and wiser and stronger and have forward-thinking visions that adults want to dismiss mm-hmm. because they're just teens. Yep. I love that you bring it into like the here and now because I feel like this this play is like in such a super masculine world yeah. where like violence is the end all be all like the pe- the patriarchs are in control and their men are lo- living for this fight like they love the fight mm-hmm. and like like people take it for granted I don't think Romeo is the ideal of what the Montague family mm-hmm. wants like they they say that he's like from the get go they're like something strange something's wrong with him Benvolio can you please like take care of him like he's not. He's not the ideal son that Montague wants. No. And I think, and going in with what you said, like how the adults are so sold on, like they're so convinced that they're right, that they don't listen to anyone. Mm -hmm. And like even in the first scene between Daddy Caps and Juliet, he asks her if like she could grow to love Paris or something along that lines. And I think she says something like, I'll look to like if looking liking moves. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Where it's not really an answer. It's not the hair saying that, like, yes, I consent, or yes, I love it. It's just more like, I, I will I will do what is right. You know, and I feel like that's a big problem. That people people don't listen to these people, yeah. these kids that they know. Yeah, and I also think in, in what we were saying just a moment ago about uh, the idea of using the lens of this love story to help us look at the larger world, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to talk about Romeo being a little bit more, you called him the soft boy. He's a soft boy. But he's, but, or just the less fighty boy, right? <laughs> but, but it's interesting because it's sort of a little, like you said, a little bit ambiguous at the beginning where they're talking about like, ah, oh, he's got this cloud over him, but it's unclear if it's like, Ah, he's always a little like this. Or if it's if it's he was a little bit more the fighty boy that they wanted, and now he's gotten a little soft. And if you read that version, that it is love that has kept him from being even love for Rosalind. That Rosaline, that's just like off and wrong and not right for him, and she's not into him. Even that is enough to keep him from like getting into the fray. Right, right. It's like the whatever. <laughs> keep, keep the kids off the streets get them hooked on love yeah love and poetry so uh, we're, we've sort of touched on this already but I guess our next sort of talking point was what's something about the play that you think is commonly misunderstood or that you wish more people would get right how smart it is people I think discount these characters Romeo and Juliet because they'll look at it historically and Romeo's 17 and she's 14 but it's like no like if you Put that aside and look at how what they're speaking, how they're speaking to each other, and how it fits together. Like the first time they meet, it creates a perfect sonnet, mm. you know. And I think that poetic structure is very deliberate on Shakespeare's part because he's flirting with her, yeah. But then you see that she play flirts back, but in the same world that he's doing it. So he she's matching it right right off the bat, and he's like keeping up with her, and they finally meet someone that speaks in the same way that they do. Like mm-hmm. they meet their intellectual equal. It's like. In Hamilton, when, gosh, what's her name? Angelica? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's like, what is it? Uh, so this is what it feels like to match wits with someone on your level. What the hell is the catch? Exactly that. It's I'll like... wrap all of Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, this is what it feels like to meet someone yeah. who's your intellectual equal. And yeah. that's so fucking hot. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. And it's like, oh gosh, I, I hate it whenever people play the Juliet line. 
you kiss by the book as if like she's making fun of him but i don't know like for me there's something like they've matched wits like they, they're like each other's intellectual equal and like she's young and i think yeah. in that in that part of in that part where she's like saying you kiss by the book it's like holy fuck like everything that i thought love is or like i i i i, I read about or like whatever like this 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 was it like not only does he match her wit and her intelligence but like he also like exceeds her expectations when it comes to a kiss like there's there's yeah. the physical and the intellectual stuff yeah oh, oh I, love that. <laughs> I just want our listeners to know that charlotte and i both in unison just now both put on <laughs> like sort of like maidens and went, ah! anyway continue you know but it's, it's just like <laughs> it's just like there's something I, I think people like because maybe it's because it's Shakespeare because it's Romeo and Juliet and we all read it in high school that they take for granted that Romeo and Juliet are meeting for the first time in that during that ball and so everything in their experience in this play is for the first time mm-hmm. and like if you can think back to the first time you had a kiss the first time you had someone of the of your preferred sex touch you or you know or more than that like it's it's so thrilling and electric and if you let yourself see that when you're seeing a good production, hopefully, knock on wood. If, you let yourself, if, they're, if they're doing it, then like it can be, I think, a very, a very wonderful night at the theater. Would Romeo and Juliet have lasted if they hadn't died? Because I think another thing that people get hung up on with this play, I think, is that how tenuous the plot is. The first that loveliness. it's the, well, the first loveliness of it, and also that like it was one messed up letter, and also Balthazar yeah. being and a Balthazar. fucking dick, just. Just wait, Balthazar, like a day. Oh, I mean, also Friar John and Friar Just Lawrence. Just everybody. All the grown-ups. I, we, all the grown-ups. This is a very anti-Friar Lawrence podcast. Because yeah, we are firmly anti-Friar Lawrence. We are Friar firmly against Friar Lawrence because Wait, he's... wait. Stop. David, how do you feel about... How do you about, feel about Friar Lawrence? Before we tell you how you should feel, <laughs> what are your thoughts on Friar Lawrence? Okay, so, like, I love Friar Lawrence. I all think right. I love the relationship he has Dude. with Romeo. I think it's like... I think it's like Romeo just... It's so weird. It's so weird a relationship. It is a wait, full... wait, let him finish. Let it's him just finish. like, okay. why is like the son of one of the richest families in town just hanging out with this old guy in his garden, you know? We, we said it's very back to the future. It's oh. very Doc Brown and Marty McFly where it's like, why are you friends with an old man, high school boy? Fuck, I love that. Because <laughs> he gets him. I or at least maybe he's like the only person that like lets him prattle on. I saw that because he think... prattles on about plants a lot. Holy Saint so Francis! I think it's one of the funniest about lines. <laughs> he does. Um, yeah, no, I, I think there there is something to that though. That his like best friends are Mercutio and Benvolio, where Benvolio is mostly just like a guy, and <laughs> I mean, his bare minimum, he's a human. <laughs> his main quality is just like being a guy, and um, and Mercutio a is a guy. Is Mercutio, and so it's uh, maybe like Friar Lawrence, he can like have tea with and talk about his feelings with because his other friends make fun of him. Yeah, Honestly, I always thought that like Fire Lawrence was like like ex military. Like, oh, he used to be a soldier. Okay, and, like in his like like his his turn to the church and all that stuff. His like this is kind of his retirement, mm. and like he's seen how fucked up this world is, how violent it is. That he like in in all of his earnest sincere effort tries to set Romeo on the best path that he can, and it just goes terribly wrong. Because I think like with a lot of Shakespeare plays, what one of the important things is that everything's happening really fast, and so the characters are dealing with it in real time in the same way that human beings make mistakes and look back and they're like, ah, I could have done this other thing. But in the moment, you're like, I just have to fix this problem and you just do the first thing that occurs to you. Yeah, and totally. I, I honestly think the friar's big downfall is when he is scared and runs away. Yeah, and we've <laughs> talked about it. Yeah, very some moments. 
Oh, wait, so we never got your answer, though, on that, which is, do you think Romeo and Juliet would have made it mm-hmm. in real life if they mm-hmm. hadn't died? I'm going to give a non-answer. I think that's the tragedy that we never get to find out. Because, mm. like, they are, in a lot of ways, they're very compatible. And maybe in a different world, it would work out. Maybe in a different world, they could explore that. I mean, we have the luxury now to see if things will work out with a potential partner. And, and then, like, they had such a promising start, and they will never get to see where it goes. And I think that's the point, you know? Aw, really beautiful. I feel like sometimes when you play a part, right, you, you end up having... Like something that's like a very specific or a very small moment that ends up speaking a lot to you or that you're like, uh, oh, I feel like my Romeo feels this way or this particular thing. I'm curious if there's any any sort of like things about your Romeo that you would want to share. Yes. Yes. Um, the second time we did it, I had been engaged for a year and I think it helped me play it because to really get to know someone and to want to spend your life with someone, I think it helped inform my second go at Romeo. So when we did the wedding scene, uh-huh. um, I actually took off my, I have this, this Jade Buddha that I've had for years that my father gave me and I've worn it every day since my father's given it to me. And in that moment of the play, I took it off and I put it on the, over the neck of my Juliet. Oh. And I think, oh. like, to me, it made sense that it was like, like come what may, what I, what I was before, what I will be, and what I am now is forever yours. And so, like, it was like that. It, he, to me, I think Romeo really does understand what he's, what he's committing to. to. Yeah. yeah. That's why he says, like, like he, he basically, I can't remember the lines because I'm, like, two wines in. <laughs> but Can I get he, any one more wine? We get our guests drunk before we bring them on the podcast. But I definitely felt that, like, there's a reason why he he just can't, he can't think of what to say because, like, he understands what he's doing and he's so happy to do it. And that's why Juliet kind of, like, really, really takes the lead in the the wedding bells. Oh, that's beautiful. Who's your favorite Shakespeare character? Who is my favorite Shakespeare character? You know, it changes. That's okay. Um, All of these questions about favorites are just your favorites on this day, whatever the fuck the day is. Well, I don't want to say what day it is. It's a day. Because <laughs> <laughs> this recording will surely go up. Not, not tomorrow. Yes, it's not April. It's whatever month it is while you're listening to it. We're right there with you. In your... Radio theater. Yeah, it's great. It's fun. Anyway, just right in this moment. We live in a very divisive time uh-huh. where people have very different ideas on what a good leader is. And I think the best play to explore what it means to be a great leader is Henry V. Mm. And right now, I am super into Henry V right now. Honestly, same. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but, um, yes. I also want to say, yeah. um, going back a little bit, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, like, if you love Moulin Rouge, <laughs> try to see Romeo and Juliet through that lens. Because, like, the scene where Christian crashes Satine's room in the, uh, in the elephant, like, that's the balcony scene. Mm. Like, it is so the balcony. Because, like, what you were saying earlier about how, how he's just, like, like his heart is bursting out of his chest saying, like, love me. I am I am so ready. I'm here. Whatever. Whatever whatever you need. Whatever you need. Whatever you want. I, I am here. You can take it from me. And she's so skeptical. She's so scared. But, like, like that's that's it. That's the balcony mm-hmm. scene. I'm sure Bob's never, mm-hmm. like, like, ripped so much inspiration from mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet for that movie. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to float a theory that's just coming to me in this yes. moment. I'd like to float a theory that um, about the setting of Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. about the time period, if you will. I think that Mercury is in retrograde. <laughs> and I just think that maybe Mercury is the enemy all along. Is it's just like the missed connection of the letters and the misunderstanding of each other. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> 
But yeah, there's no like evil scheming. There's no like Don John who's like, yeah. I'm gonna fuck up my brother's day just because. <laughs> ha! Yeah, fuck or, that guy. <laughs> or even like an Iago yeah, character yeah. who's who's a villain with dimension, but still just comes out and is like, mm, I'll be evil today. Yeah. Like there, there's no equivalent of that in Romeo and Juliet. It's every the people who do bad things are always trying to live up to some idea of what they think they should be doing. You know, I heard um, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival they're doing Romeo and Juliet this year and mm-hmm. not. 2018, but in a previous production in their history, the guy playing Capulet played him with a heart problem. Mm. And so the reason why he's like so set on setting Juliet up is because he needs someone to like take care of her and like make sure everything's okay. That's interesting. And so like, yeah, I know, right? It's so brilliant, this choice. Because it's like, it's like like how erratic he gets. Exactly. It's like, well, he doesn't really listen. That's like my disclaimer. But he asks her like, could you love, could you grow to love Paris? And she says something positive. He's not quite sure, but it sounded like yes. Yeah, and you're like an old dad. You yeah. don't speak teen. It sounded like she maybe yeah, said yes. It's, he's, he's, he's a prince. He's a doctor. Like, you know, like, <laughs> this is going to be great. Yeah. But then later when she turns 180, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like everything, all these plans and then the, like the loss of Tibble, like it, it, it causes a strain for him. Like everything that he thought was solid is not solid. Like it puts him in a, in a spin. And you're right. Like no one, I don't think anyone's a villain in this play. Except yeah. maybe Mercury. <laughs> all right david we have another question shoot what is your first or fondest memory with shakespeare i think my fondest memory is watching the um shoot i might i may mess up their name but the aquila theater company um in 20 no in 2009 they brought a touring production of comedy of errors to my hometown of lafayette louisiana at that point in my life i had never done shakespeare before I had never been really exposed to it, but I saw their production of Comedy of Errors and it looked like they were having so much fun that like I was 19, I was a sophomore in college, I saw them and I thought, wow, I want to do that. Hmm. And that summer I booked my first um, summer stock Shakespeare gig. What was was it? I played Orlando and As You Like It. Of course Aww. you did. And yeah, dumb, romantic, yep. And, and uh, I was in the ensemble and I played Lodovico and Othello um, at the Arkansas Shakespeare mm. Theater. And um, it was off. I was off doing oh. Shakespeare. Oh, that's great. Shakespeare. All right, so last thing, David, is are there any projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to give a shout out to? I'm back in New York City. I'm, I've sorted out some new representation and I'm hitting the audition circuit. So just wish me luck. Yeah. Hire David. He's very talented. He's talented <laughs> and he's so agreeable. <laughs> he's like so easy to work with. He's delightful. And he agreed to come on our podcast. And thank you so much, David. Yes. It's fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the tamale. I made him a tamale. And the tarts. <laughs> Now is the part of the podcast where we read a monologue from the play we've been discussing in a series of funny voices. Are you ready, Charlotte? I'm ready. What speech are you going to share with us? Uh, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Gosh, one of my faves. Ready? Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. start it as a Tennessee Williams character. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father. Linda Belcher. And ref- <laughs> And refuse. Thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love. Severus Snape. And I'll no longer be a Capulet. <laughs> Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Mickey Mouse. <laughs> thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face. 
Well, any other part belonging to a male. Like you're super wasted. Uh, be some other name. What's in a name? That makes me call a rose. Right. Any other name would smell as sweet. Like a fairy princess. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name. Kermit the Frog. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Done. This has been What You Will, a tedious and brief Shakespeare podcast. Um, please like and subscribe. Yeah, like find our social media. If we don't have it us, yet. Like, like write nice reviews about us. Tell all of your please friends about your friends. it. It's really word of mouth. Dear is, God, is please tell your friends. Don't be mean to us on the internet. Be nice. We'll be sad. We'll be sad. This has been What You Will, a tedious and brief Shakespeare podcast. <laughs>